When I was growing up, I was a, a huge basketball fan, uh, still am, and I used to love to watch Michael Jordan play. Uh, in fact, I used to pretend that I was Michael Jordan in my backyard. Uh, I would lower the goal to like six feet, and then I would practice his dunks and, and just had a grand old time all by myself. Um, but as I grew older, uh, you know, Michael Jordan retired and then he retired again. Uh, but after his second retirement, he, he actually came back. He came back as an owner and player for a team, and uh, while I was in college, we found out he was going to be playing in Memphis, which was just about five hours from where, or three hours from where I, I played or went to college. And one of my buddies said, hey, my dad, um, he works for this company, and they have tickets that they'd like to give us if we want to go to this game. Now, I had never been to a professional basketball game before, so I, I was excited about this. So we jumped in the car, and we drove up there and uh, got to the game just in time, got our tickets. Uh, went down and got to sit literally like 10 rows from where Michael Jordan was playing basketball. Um, I was just absolutely starstruck to see him play. He wasn't as good as he had used to, to be, but he was still pretty good. And, um, and so it was fun to watch him, to see him. Uh, I was also struck by just how close I was to him. Uh, I thought that, you know, this must be what it's like for everybody to go to a basketball game because it's the only basketball game I'd ever been to. And then I looked down at my tickets and I noticed that the tickets were over 200 bucks a piece. And I said, I don't think everybody goes to basketball games this way. I don't. Uh, later, I went to a basketball game and um, I bought my own seats. Uh, I went to see the Miami Heat play. And uh, I actually, uh, when I bought my seats, sat in the, the 400s uh, where I, I didn't realize this, but I literally couldn't tell if, you know, I was looking at like Dwayne Wade or if I was looking at like the concession man. I got confused sometimes because it was just so far back. And it was really in that moment that I realized just how privileged I had been with the seats that I had. I didn't really understand the value of where I was sitting when I was sitting there. And what's fascinating is today, you know, we're back in our Hopeful Exile series in 1 Peter. And I believe that what Peter is wanting to do in verses 10 to 12 is remind Christians of what a privileged status they have. Like, I want you to understand the significance of the seats that you're sitting in. Now, why might he have to remind Christians of that? Well, probably because they're human like us, and we quickly can forget our status in Christ. Isn't it easy? I mean, it doesn't take much more than a parking ticket or um, a, a family member who gets upset with you or uh, anything like that for us to quickly begin to forget that, that reality that has shaped us by the fact that we have been united with Christ. And so here what Peter is telling a group of Asian Christians uh, who were growing up in, in a Roman territory of Asia Minor who have been facing all kinds of sufferings, everything from social pressure to political uh, uh, persecution, that they need to remember their status. Don't forget who you are in Christ. See, if you don't forget this, then it's going to be helpful for you to make sure that you make it to the end, that glorious end that I've just promised you. So, so far as we've looked in 1 Peter, we've noticed that uh, verses 3 to 12 are just one sentence, and in those first few verses of this long sentence, verses 3 to 5, uh, he told us about the nature of the fact that we have been born again by the Spirit. And then you'll remember uh, that he told us not only we've been born again, but that we have a, a great future that is coming. And we're looking forward to that future. And not only do we have a great future, he moves in to say that despite the great future we have, you need to be careful because this current reality is full of persecutions and trials. So the future is beautiful and glorious, but the present is grievous. And you need to be ready for that. 
Well, this morning, as he moves into the end of this sentence, the introduction of this book, what he wants us to know is, is that right now, even though you are facing these persecutions, you have a privileged status that you do not need to lose sight of. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. In fact, our big idea is this. It is that you cannot exaggerate the inestimable value of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus right now. You cannot exaggerate, you cannot overestimate the value of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus right now. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Uh, Now, before we do that, we need the Holy Spirit's help. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we again come before you, our great God, praying that you would help us. We need your help. In fact, Father, I'm sure there are many here this morning who are desperate to hear from you. And Lord, if we all really truly understood both who we are and and who you are and the resources that are richly available to us, God, we would probably be even more desperate than we are right now. And so, Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to see our deep need for more of you. God, that's true of everybody in this room. And Lord, we know that we need to hear from you this morning. And so we ask that you would speak to our hearts. Father, that you would use your word to awaken our spiritual eyes to see and savor your son Christ above all else. Lord, help us to see who we are in Christ and know our privileged status. Do this to the glory of your name we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we're going to see this morning comes in verses 10 to 11. And we're going to see that the spirit of Christ sent the prophets eagerly searching for Christ. The Spirit of Christ sent the prophets searching eagerly for Christ. And we're going to break that down. Now, this, these two verses that we are looking at, I believe, is a significant text for helping us understand how to read our Bibles. You know, how to open them up and understand how we should read the Old Testament in addition to it being an encouragement to us about our status in Christ. Now look again with me in 1 Peter, First uh, Peter, and we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. And here is what the word of the Lord says in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now here, Peter, you'll notice he's highlighting the the ministry of these Old Testament prophets, uh, a ministry that was established in Deuteronomy 18, uh, where Moses was at Mount Sinai after the Exodus. And we have uh, all kinds of prophets that we'll find in the Old Testament. So you'll find prophets like Moses and Elijah And and others. And then you'll also, as you read through the Bible, find that there are even whole books in a section of the Bible that's devoted to major prophets like Isaiah, that's the long ones, and shorter prophets like Amos, those shorter prophets. Now, of course, both of those prophets speak with a unique power, an equal force. Both minor minor and major prophets speak, thus saith the Lord. The only difference is some are shorter and some are longer. Well, in the same way that a king's messenger would have been killed for tampering with the king's seal, that wax that would have been placed to to close a letter, if they would have tampered with that, they would have faced death. 
And it's in the same way the prophet would have faced death if he added to or took away from God's word. That's how serious God took his word going to his people. Now, prophets prophesied to Israel and Judah about their futures. And typically, their messages warned the nation that both God's judgment and salvation were coming. They preached both. Now, Jews expected from those prophecies a rescue, a rescue from things like exile, a salvation from external enemies who were Gentiles, and a reunion with God in the promised land that they had never fully realized in the way that the prophets prophesied and set their hopes on. And that's why this would have sounded so startling, this message in Peter, and, and also encouraging, coming from Peter, a, a Jew who is writing to a Gentile Christian audience. These are people who are feeling alienated from the faith, and they're feeling a little bit like outsiders, like those who maybe God's attention isn't on as much as those Jewish Christians. And maybe they feel like second-rate citizens because of their sufferings, but Peter says, far from it. So you have the best seat in the house. Catch this. Peter says the great prophets of the Old Testament, those guys, they searched and inquired carefully. They longed to see something. Now, when these two words are put together, searched and inquired, it, it's kind of like uh, Peter's doubling down on the language to add emphasis or an intensification. In other words, he's not just looking for something, he is searching eagerly for it. So it, it, the image that's given here is really that of a prophet looking like an investigator who's hot on the trail for a missing child. Or kind of like my dog Shep. Now my dog Shep is, is typically pretty lazy. He likes to sleep a lot. Usually when he moves, it's to find a better nap spot. It's hard to get him excited about much unless you take him outside, unless he catches the scent of a piece of steak fresh off the grill. At which point, all of his body arises in an emotional looking for where that piece of meat must be. He's sniffing everywhere, under the table, on the table. He's climbing on the table. And all of a sudden, he has energy. And in the same way, what we find here is there's a kind of energizing that's happening with these prophets. And what is it the scent of that's actually driving them to start to look? It is Christ himself. They catch a whiff of Christ, and they are on the trail. They want to find the Christ that the Spirit of Christ had given them a vision of who was to come. He is excited. These prophets are excited. You'll notice in verse 11, it tells us that they eagerly sought after Christ. Now, you might be asking yourself, what does the word Christ mean? In fact, we, we just sang a song about our Lord whose name is Jesus Christ. In fact, I just heard from a parent this morning that on the way to church, their daughter asked them if Christ was Jesus' last name. He said, well, that's a great question. Let's talk about it. And uh, what he explained is probably the same thing that I would explain this morning, and that is that Christ is really just our New Testament word for that Old Testament word, Messiah. The, the, the spirit-anointed David-like king who would come and rescue the people of God. But notice here that Peter is highlighting a specific prediction that the prophets made about Christ. Did you see in verse 11? He says it's his sufferings and subsequent glories. That's what they saw in the prophets. Not only that, 
Did you notice that Peter says that it was the spirit of Christ that sent the, sent the prophets looking for Christ? I mean, that, that sounds a little bit striking, doesn't it? Like, that would be like me saying, hey, I'm gonna send you to look for me. Like, well, you're right here. But here, you have to ask yourself, how did Christ do this? How did he send the, the prophets to look for him before Jesus had ever taken on flesh? Well, here's what we find here, and we find it elsewhere testified to in the New Testament, and that's this, that Jesus Christ is not merely a prophet like Joseph Smith. He's not merely a prophet like Muhammad. Jesus Christ is the eternal God-man. This is speaking of the pre-incarnate Christ, that second person of the Godhead, God the Son, who revealed what Christ himself would look like. Now, we see three realities here about this, this statement that is given, important realities for us. And the first is this. The prophets diligently searched God's word for the coming Christ. The prophets diligently searched God's word for the coming Christ. Now, you might ask, where did the prophets search intently for Christ? Well, here it looks like it speaks of their attempts to discern the time when their predictions would be fulfilled. So the prophet Daniel describes something like this, and we know that prophecies came in different ways. Uh, Daniel had a vision, and we're told in Daniel 8.15 that Daniel, it says this of him, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, that vision that came from God, I sought to understand it. In other words, God had given him a vision, yet at the same time, he didn't fully understand the vision that he had received. So prophets likely searched their own prophecies for meaning, as well as earlier prophecies for what this Christ would be like, when he would come and who he would be. Now, I'm just wondering, when you think about the way that you view your Bible that includes the prophecies and other revelation from God to us, his people, would you consider your pursuit of God and his word meager or eager? In other words, when you think about the way that you are looking and scouring through the scriptures, do you sense that there's the kind of eagerness that the prophets had in the word of God, or do you sense this morning that there is a way in which your heart meagerly really looks for Jesus in the word? Are you desperate? Do you sense in your heart a desperation to know more of Christ in his word? Are you looking in other places for revelation about God that are actually in your Bible as it gathers dust? Now, I'm not here to guilt trip you, but I would invite the spirit of Christ this morning to bring a fresh conviction that God's word gives birth to a living hope that we all need. And maybe this morning, the reason that you have not been scouring the word like his prophets did is because you have not really truly taken confidence that the living hope that God tells you is there in his word for you is really there. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it is there on every page. God has hope for you that all points towards Christ and the resources that richly flow from him. And if Isaiah and Amos needed to search God's word diligently to find Christ, don't we need to too? Don't we? Don't we? Yeah. But not only that, second thing that we see here with this word, still in the first point, would be B. Second, how uh, we should always read the Old Testament with an eye towards Christ. The prophets in the Old Testament is ultimately about 
Christ. It ultimately points to Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Well, Peter tells us here, but not only does Peter tell us this, uh, notice that Jesus himself, the earthly Jesus, says this in Luke 24. Now, I love the scene in in Luke 24. Uh, This scene is, you'll remember, two men on the day of the resurrection are walking on a road to Emmaus. And on that road, as they are walking, you'll remember that the resurrected Jesus shows up. Do you know what they're talking about when he shows up? They're debating whether or not the resurrection really happened and how silly that sounds. And as Jesus shows up, they don't even know that the man who has been raised from the dead that they are talking about is actually there to talk them through it. And in the middle of this, Jesus says to them, I don't think you understand your Bibles. Just think about this. They're doubting the resurrection. And they've got a couple of opportunities to think through this. And, uh, and as they're thinking through this, you'll remember that in that moment, Jesus gives them counsel and proof for how they should have known that the resurrection happened. Basically saying that they are slow. And, and, and here's what he does. Notice he doesn't say, hey, let me show you a miracle. I'll show you the hands, the holes in my hands and feet, and then you'll believe me. Doesn't do that. Uh, He doesn't uh, say something to the effect of like, I'm going to do some powerful sign or miracle that will prove to you that I am the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what he does. What does he do to prove to them that Jesus Christ literally was raised from the dead? Points them to their Bibles. He says, have you not read your Bibles? That's what he says. If you look in Luke 24, 26 to 27, this is what he says. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things? Before he enters into glory, and beginning with Moses and then all of the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And those things concerning himself, of course, dealt with the suffering and the subsequent glories that would come to this son, Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus says, if you understood the prophets, my death and resurrection would not surprise you. So you would see that Isaiah 53's prediction that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgression. And then later in the same chapter, after he faced the grave, God promised that the will of the Lord would prosper in this Messiah's hand. See, Jesus told these two guys if they understood the prophets, they would know humiliation would precede exaltation. That death would precede resurrection. And that Jesus would have to go down before he went up. We ought to expect all Christian teaching to be Christ-centered. Now, while we were on vacation a couple years ago, uh, I had a a beautiful experience of of this realization. Uh, We went to visit a church. We visited a number of churches, and we visited this one large church that I would consider friends, uh, people who love Jesus. And uh, we took my son in, and uh, my sons, and we sat down, and we were listening to the sermon. And afterwards, we got in the car, and we were leaving, and uh, we were talking about the sermon. And it was about Jeremiah 2. Now, in Jeremiah 2, it it talks about a donkey that was basically sniffing after the wind. And uh, and the pastor that was preaching really got excited about this donkey and spent about 10 minutes talking about this donkey and his sniffing. And when he got done, uh, you know, and said, amen, uh, thank you, Lord, for donkeys, we like left. And so we're in the car, and I asked my boys, as I usually do, hey, what did you think about the sermon today? Uh, Anything that struck you? And my son at the time, Benjamin, he was nine years old, and he said, uh, yeah, he said, man, dad, he really was interested in that donkey, wasn't he? I was like, yeah, he was. He, he liked that donkey. And he was like, yeah, just sniffing all over the place. He said, that was, that was interesting. 
And he said, but you know, Dad, there was something else. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know if this is right or not, but um, he, didn't, he didn't say anything about Jesus. And he said, I just I feel like, Dad, if you're preaching in a church, you should probably at least use Jesus' name, right? And I said, son, I am so proud of you. Kids, we're not even eating lunch today. We're going straight to dessert. You're going to get ice cream with fudge and whipped cream and nuts and whatever else you want because you just made Dad prouder than proud. And why was I so excited? It was because I was thrilled to see that my nine-year-old son understood that when we hear preaching, preaching ought to exalt Christ. You should never leave questioning whether much was made of Jesus. And I want you to know here at Trinity Bible Church, we will never preach a sermon that, that does not exalt and revel in Jesus Christ is the ultimate hero of our story. And we look at him week after week in many different ways, in many different times, in different aspects of the gospel, because there is so much glory to be had in Christ, and we don't want you to miss out on it. In fact, we don't believe that we have hope apart from Christ. We are not gonna find hope in our own deeds, and our own efforts. We will only find hope in the work of Jesus Christ that's been accomplished in the future that he promises us. We love Christ here. But you'll notice something else here. You'll notice that there is a third and important fact, that is this, that prophets spoke better than they knew. Prophets spoke better than they knew. Now, I know this may seem a little bit obvious as you read this, but notice that the Spirit of Christ revealed the coming Messiah to them. Even the great prophets only saw in part what we see in full today in Christ. See, they prophesied into their context, but it was the Spirit of Christ that spoke both in their circumstances, the circumstances of the prophets, and beyond to our day where we are right now. So those prophets looked forward to Christ coming, and the New Testament looks back to the prophets to show that Christ came according to God's plan. See, no one at the time of the first or second no one knew the time of the first or second coming of Christ. Not Jesus in his humanity, he did in his deity, but his humanity, not even angels knew the time that Jesus would come. But Peter says the time of Christ is now. The time that the prophets longed for has arrived, and we're experiencing that time even in this moment. And Peter says that time is now. So as Christians, we should read the prophets, catch this, looking for Jesus like Peter does, right? I mean, if Peter says the prophet spoke of Christ, that means when we speak, when we read the prophets, we should be looking for Christ all over the place. And notice here that Peter says that the prophecies given to Isaiah concerning God's judgment of Judah and his foretelling the Babylonian exile and that subsequent salvation by a suffering Messiah who would also conquer were really for Gentiles like Peter's churches and us. So Isaiah was giving a word that ultimately, according here to 1 Peter, was for us. Don't miss this. Listen close. The prophets are ultimately from Christ, for Christians, about Christians. I think that's what Peter's saying in this text. So when we're reading the Old Testament, we want to understand it in light of the revealed Christ. As we start our, our 90-day Bible reading plan, this challenge that we're going through, we're encouraging you, uh, many of you hopefully, to uh, try to read through tackling the Bible in a year. Uh, I would love to see a number of people be able to do that for the first time this year. 
Uh, others of you, as you're doing this 90-day challenge, you're thinking like, I, I need to set my, my goals in like an actual level that I can accomplish, and so I'm gonna try to read through uh, a few books of the Bible with someone else. I think that's great over these 90 days. Uh, this is meant to be a ramp up for that. But as we're doing that, you're gonna find yourself probably eventually coming to some difficult books like Ezekiel or Isaiah, long books, prophecies. And as you read those, you're gonna be tempted to think to yourself, this feels so far away from me. Like, I don't understand what this has to do with me or if it has anything to do with all with me. Well, let me tell you what Peter says. It absolutely has something to do with you. Every page, every page has something to do with you. It points you towards Christ. And if you're not seeing Christ, then find somebody to help you see Christ in all of the pages of the Bible. Because Christ is there. When you read the Bible, think of that moment as something that is glorious. Just think about this. It was the Spirit of Christ that led prophets to write the Old Testament. And they wrote those Old Testaments for people like you and me who would be united by Christ, to Christ by faith, becoming part of the Christian community so that these words are for us. And not only that, we as Christians have been born again and possess the Holy Spirit so that as we read the word inspired by the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ within us is actually looking for Jesus in the Bible inspired by Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Christ is all about us being in the word, listening to him, being transformed and changed by that same word. So when you read the Bible, I, I want you to think about it not as something that is boring or something that is like this, this bookish thing that is uh, just uh, academics. It is actually a, a rendezvous with Jesus Christ himself. You are meeting with Christ in Christ's word by the power of Christ's spirit. But there's a second thing that we see in this text this morning, second main point, and that's this. This is the encouragement. The least Christian, catch this, sees more clearly than the greatest Old Testament prophet. That's what Peter says. The least Christian sees more clearly than the greatest Old Testament prophet. You'll see that in verse 12a. Notice what he says there. He says, it, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying that these things that the prophets saw and revealed, they ultimately were not for themselves, but for the church. Now Peter also says the Old Testament prophets suffered for future grace that was for those Christians in Asia. See, Peter's highlighting the unique status of these Christians. Do you see it? They are seeing the fulfillment of the promises God made through them concerning Christ. Now, I don't know how you think about the Old Testament prophets. Uh, many think of them as spiritual superheroes, and they are, but they were also real men. They were real men with limitations physically. They, were, they had limitations uh, in, in themselves physically. Uh, they also had limitations in how far they could see into the future with the prophecies that God had given them. But catch this, these superheroes of the faith, here's what Peter says, they were serving us. They were giving us shadows that we were to receive the fulfillment of. Promises fulfilled in us. I mean, what an amazing thing to think about. This morning, as we were sitting here at Trinity Bible Church, and you look around and you see a host of people who have placed their faith in Jesus, who have actually covenanted together to seek Jesus and to live for Christ with their lives, 
confessing that they are sinners who need help. As we look at one another, we are the fulfillment of what Isaiah looked for and never got to see. We are the thing that, that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos were so excited about. The nations being gathered by the gospel to create a new humanity in Christ. And it's happening right here. And this is exactly the very thing that Peter sees amongst his Christians. He sees the prophets as being servants who saw that the fulfillment of what they longed to see, they might not ever get to see face to face until Jesus' second return. I love what John Calvin says about the, the way that the prophets have served us. He says, they spread the table that others might afterward feed on it the provisions that were laid on it. See, God showed the prophets, it's not for you. Not immediately. Now just think about this for a second. The prophets of God that we read, uh, read in our Bibles were struck with awe at the coming reality they foresaw that we are experiencing the fruit of right this very moment. They delivered the promises and we are the fulfillment. Now just think about that. The prophets spent hundreds or thousands of years hunting for what we've had announced to us in the gospel. In fact, it looks like the preaching of these new believers actually came out of the prophets. It seems to be what Peter's saying. Uh, you'll notice that that must be the case. How else would the prophets be serving them if not that their prophecies were being used in the preaching that was heralded to them of the, the long-awaited victory of their king? It, it must be that when they were non-believers, Peter thought that it was worthwhile to preach from the Old Testament to these non-believers. That's kind of crazy. How many of you think, oh, I've got a non-Christian. I need to take him to Isaiah. Anybody here? Like I do, but I mean the rest of you. No? Okay. It's a good thing to do. But not only that, because these Christians were, of course, 30 years after the death of Jesus and heard the proclamation. It wasn't uh, at Pentecost that they heard it. But take note here that the Spirit of Christ empowered the prophets and the Holy Spirit empowered the preachers who preached the good news to them. Now, there's a link that's being made here that's, that's very strong. And he is saying this. He is saying that this Holy Spirit that empowered the Spirit of Christ, that empowered the prophets, is very similar to the way the Holy Spirit empowers preachers who preach the good news to them. See, this is the same Spirit because there is one God, the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit. But I believe that it speaks of a new era in redemptive history launched at Pentecost in Acts 2. See, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, that little phrase, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, in verse 12, it points to Pentecost. Now, you'll remember the story of, of Jesus, right? And we see it kind of on display here, but let me just catch you up to speed if you haven't heard it. It is that there was a, a preexistent, there is a preexistent Son of God who took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, who walked the earth for over 30 years, a perfect life in obedience to God in every way, before he actually went to the cross to die in our place for our sins so that all who would repent and believe could actually have peace with God. And not only did he die, he was raised from the dead by God to declare that he truly is whom he claimed to be. And then we, we know just to help that out more that he walked the earth for 40 days telling people, teaching people about who he was and how all of the Bible pointed to him and how he fulfilled that. Well, after that 40 days, he ascended to heaven and 10 days later, he sent down his spirit, his Holy Spirit, in Acts 2 to the, to the, uh, to the Jews in, uh, in Jerusalem at Pentecost, where, where Jews had been gathered from every nation 
to come and celebrate Pentecost, the Spirit came down, and we're told that in that moment, Peter began to preach. And he preached to Jews from every nation at this feast. And do you know what Peter preached from as he was preaching, as the Spirit came down upon him from heaven in that moment? What was he preaching from? The Old Testament. He was preaching from Joel 2, 28 to 32, talking about how the Spirit would be given broadly to all flesh. He's preaching from Psalm 110 about how there would come a king who was also a priest who would rule and reign over them. And he was saying, Jesus is that king that David saw in Psalm 110. And in all these texts, he is pointing them through the Old Testament scriptures towards the nature of who Jesus is. And he says through those texts that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. And not only that, he died for their sins. He suffered and was raised from the dead. That's how Peter began to preach. And he preached those things from the prophets. See, Peter preached to Jews there, telling them of the good news that Jesus had come. So Peter understands obedient preachers as preaching in the same spirit that led prophets. Now, here's how I get there. You'll notice that the spirit coming down is speaking of Pentecost, but we know that the preaching that these Christians heard was not at Pentecost, because this was 30 years after the death of Jesus. And so this is speaking of the preaching that came after that would have led them to faith in Christ, that would have led them to understand, them as, understand themselves as believers. Now check this out. Here what I believe Peter is doing is he is elevating the nature of preaching, the way that we might view preaching. In other words, I think that maybe some of us are preaching and our view of preaching may be too low, and all of us are constantly in danger of losing sight of the significance of the preached word of God. But catch this, the same spirit that led these prophets to prophesy leads preachers to preach. Did you see that, that connection? In other words, prophets looked forward to Christ's coming. Preachers looked back to the cross and forward to his second coming. See, they proclaimed the good news to those living between those two comings of Christ. So let me just ask you this morning, have you considered that listening to preaching is a spiritual thing and that it is a privilege to hear about the excellencies of Jesus Christ that have come to you? Have you considered the vastness of that? Let me ask you this. When you think about the nature of preaching, just how difficult is it for you to find a preacher that you can stand to listen to? Now, don't get me wrong. Preaching should never get boring. It should never be boring. But, but I, need, I need to ask you, not only should, should preaching not be boring, but beyond that, do you struggle in general to listen to God's word preached, even as Christ is exalted? Just think about it. If you really believed that something was going to happen this morning that Isaiah spoke of and longed to see, how would you prepare before you came? Would you pray for the Holy Spirit to move in your life and the life of others? Would you ask that the Holy Spirit would regenerate the lost, even by name? Would you pray that God would give a, a living hope to those around you that believe but have chronic illness or chronic sin that they just can't get rid of? Would you pray for the preacher that God would anoint him with a holy unction that pierces hearts and transforms lives? Would you get a good night's sleep? 
Would you invite friends to come and see that God really is alive, trusting that God really does move through the preaching of the word in ways that we might not even be able to see? Would you plead with and for spiritually dead people who do not have spiritual ears to hear or eyes to see? Would you repent of sin and read the text? Would you read the text before you came so that you were ready in your heart to hear what God had to say? If you've lost confidence in the power of preaching or simply did not know that the Bible speaks of it in this way, let's get ready for the Holy Spirit to move. Let's come ready. Let's come ready and expectant in the same way that prophets were expectant for God to do something amazing. Now, if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, let me just say that you might struggle with listening to preaching because you haven't been born again like we're told in verse three has happened to the Christians that Peter is speaking to. What that means is is that you have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and understood yourself to be a sinner in need of God's help to find reconciliation with God, help that can only be found in Christ. And so you've not received the Holy Spirit that regenerates you and, and brings you to newness of life, that gives you a sense for God, that gives you an appetite for the things of God. And if that's you this morning, I would love to talk to you. I'm sure we have many Christians here that would love to talk to you. Please don't leave without talking to one of us about how you can become a child of God. But as for other Christians here, do you understand your need for an embodied preacher led by the Holy Spirit? You'll notice that there's a reason that the pre-incarnate Christ came and took on flesh. It's because we are body souls. And the Holy Spirit loves to move and embodies communities. And that means that we really need more than live streams or podcasts of pastors. Now, the reason I say this is because um, not that I don't think that those things are good. It's just that I don't think those things are sufficient. Now, things are about to get worse. I'm just, I'm waiting for the day, right? Um, I don't know if y'all have been keeping up with like artificial intelligence and the way this stuff's going. Uh, but they're now creating robots, robots that look really human. And just imagine for a second, I'm sure this is coming. I mean, we, we like to video stream pastors. Well, why settle for that? Why not just have a church that centers on an artificial intelligence robot pastor who is just like the, your favorite pastor from the past? Think about it. You, you, we have enough sermons. You can live your whole life under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield. And what a great thing. Now he's robotic, but why does that matter? I mean, it's the word. I just like the teaching. I just want the content. Well, here's the problem. A robot doesn't have a soul, and God's spirit loves to come and move in actual communities of people. He likes to breathe life into real people. So sermons that are recorded are great, and and they can be helpful, but they are not sufficient for your soul. You need a pastor who knows you. You need a pastor who loves you, a pastor who actually has a heart and a heartbeat. I love what uh, George Whitfield had to say about this kind of thing. Now, obviously, he wasn't dealing with artificial intelligence. He was just dealing with this idea that people wanted to print his sermons. And he said this in response to a guy who asked to print his sermons. He says, well, I I have no inherent objection to it, if you like. But you will never be able to put on the printed page the lightning and the thunder. Catch that? He believed there was something special and unique that happened when you were in the presence of the man of God preaching the word of God to the people of God. And we need that. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones picked up on this statement by George Whitfield in his book, Preaching and Preachers, and he says this. He says, to Whitfield, this was of very great importance, and it should be of very great importance to all preachers, as I hope to show. You can put the sermon into print, but not the lightning and thunder. That comes in the act of preaching and cannot be put into print. We need real pastors preaching to us, knowing us, holding us accountable. Written and recorded sermons are good, but not sufficient for what we need. Not only that, Peter's main point here, let's not miss that, that's this. It is the privileged position in which we stand as new covenant people, and that that position is beyond comparison. He says, these prophets long to see this. You are in such a better seat than you realize. You are a privileged people. Don't let your persecution cloud your eyes to the reality of where you are with Christ. It is good news. Edmund Clowney says this in his commentary, the least disciple of Christ is in a better position to understand Old Testament revelation than the greatest prophet before Christ came. We get to see the mystery from ages past revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, this reality is so amazing that Peter adds one last phrase that really just takes it out of this world. This is what he says. He says, the power of the gospel even amazes angels. Power of the gospel even amazes angels. Did you catch that last little phrase in verse 12? He says there that the power of the gospel on display in these churches and with these Christians are things into which angels long to look. Uh, Charles Spurgeon actually wrote a, a whole sermon on this little phrase, and it's plenty encouraging. But, but the idea here is that the angels look at what Christ's work has done with spellbound wonder. They're looking down on the gospel at play in a church, and they are looking and they are amazed, according to Peter. Now, this isn't the only place that says this. You remember that in Ephesians 3, Paul says something much the same. In Ephesians 3, uh, Paul is talking about the, the power of the gospel and the way that it has actually reconciled us to God through Christ. But not only that, he says it's also reconciled us to one another so that Jew and Gentile are actually reconciled, becoming one new man, a new creation is breaking out in the church. And so that he's saying that that mystery of the gospel has now been unveiled in Christ. And this is what he says in Ephesians 3.10 as he wraps up. This mystery of the gospel has been revealed so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. I'm sure this manifold wisdom of God that once seemed like a mystery at least looks like the various prophecies through a host of prophets being fulfilled in the church. And those rulers and authorities in heavenly places is speaking of angels. Now, why do you think that these angels are struck by the power of the gospel amongst God's people in the church? Well, you'll remember that man was created a little lower than the angels who live to do the bidding of God. And interestingly, this gospel excludes the salvation of fallen angels. It's actually for fallen humanity whom God has exalted with Christ, whom he raised from the dead, giving them a greater status than anything they could have imagined or believed. So it seems that in the same way that the prophets earnestly searched for the time of the Christ that they knew they would not see, the angels look on amazed at the gospel on display in the church. How much more should these Christians pay careful attention to this gospel and the church, given that they get front row seats to the power of the gospel on display. Do you see that? In other words, when it comes to the history of redemptions, these are the best seats in the house. 
We get to see God up front on display in Christ. And how much more should we pay attention to the glories of the gospel? See, we don't need to lose sight of the privileged status that we have in Christ. I wanted to to close with just a couple of uh, illustrations uh, just to help you understand why I think this is important. I think this is important for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first illustration I have is is from the Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it's uh, actually a a book that was written by C.S. Lewis. Uh, He wrote it in in honor of J.R.R. Tolkien, and in it, he he basically shares this, um, this series of letters meant to kind of taunt the devil. And so he writes in the voice of a demon named um, Screwtape, who's writing to his nephew Wormwood about how he can do better at helping uh, or or preventing people from becoming Christians or at least from becoming good Christians. And so as he's writing this letter to Wormwood, he says in his second letter that one of our great allies at present is the church itself. And by that, what I mean, what he means is the physical church that you see. Not that spiritual church that Christ speaks of in Matthew 18 where the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's talking about specifically here the physical church. And he says this, make this patient, that's the way he describes people pursuing Christ, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the pew. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. You see it, you you look around, you see what you see with your eyes, you're not looking with spiritual eyes, and you think that religion must be ridiculous. And his point is that physical eyes can miss the power of the gospel and forget the majesty of the church that angels look upon with spellbound wonder. It's a deception that we don't see what God is doing amongst us. And that it is so difficult for us to see the power of God and the goodness of God and his fullness of grace that is being displayed in so many multifaceted ways in our brothers and sisters all around us. Suffering, disappointment, not paying attention to spiritual disciplines, all of these things can cause us to lose sight of just how uniquely privileged we are. And we need to be reminded of the privilege that we have in the gospel. But there's another, another vision that I want to give you. Don't miss this. You can't exaggerate the ineffable value of the grace that is yours in Christ. That's the reality that we have. Prophets eagerly sought it for us. Preachers announced the victory to us. And angels, angels right this moment are gazing upon us in spellbound wonder over the ineffable glory that is so lavishly poured over us. In fact, this is the vision that The second vision that that we have, it comes from 19th century English pastor Charles Bridges. The very first page of his book on Christian ministry, he writes these words that, that really changed my life and my vision of the church. He said this, the church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed in the universe. The revelations made to the church, the successive grand events in her history, and above all, the manifestations of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ furnish even to the heavenly intelligences fresh subjects of adoring contemplation. Do you believe that this morning? God's word says it. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you and we praise you that you have given us a privileged status in Christ. Father, you have given us plenty of riches to behold and be found in him to last us 
for the rest of eternity as we seek and pursue them out. And so God, this morning we pray that you have awakened our hearts to look with the kind of joy and the kind of eagerness upon the things of the gospel that the prophets and the angels look on with such eagerness. God, do that to the glory of your name we do pray. Amen.